I'd like to introduce myself. <clears throat> well, I'm glad to be here. You know, if all of y'all were sitting right here in this one section, we'd have a big crowd. <laughs> Keith actually sent me a text and said, don't expect to see too many people. You got staff gone, you got uh, people on vacation, you got mission trip, and then you got a certain percentage that never come on Sunday night. And that's true in guess how many churches? All the Southern Baptist churches we got. Well, I am delighted to be here. We uh, were at Union Baptist Church this morning, and so we got back here tonight. And uh, tell you what I want to do, I want to share with you a message. And if you want to interrupt me at any time and say, wait a minute, I've got a question, I want you to go ahead and do that, okay? I want to talk to you tonight about real discipleship. By the way, is Cliff and Barbara Satterwhite a member of this church? Would you somebody please tell Cliff that I was here and I was highly disappointed that he didn't show up? <laughs> if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Luke chapter 9, verses 20, uh, 57 through 62. Being is more important than doing. You believe that? Being is more important than doing. We can do Christian stuff without being a Christian. That's why we have so many, and let's just make it family. Let's talk about Southern Baptists. That's why in the Southern Baptist denomination, we have so many people that really aren't Christians. You say, how can you say that? I'm going to show you how I say that in just a second. But being is more important than doing because to be a Christian or to be a disciple means we're called to disciple other people. But sometimes when we try to disciple other people without being a disciple ourselves, we get in a lot of trouble. We get into confusion because we really don't know what the next step is in the process. Discipleship is at the heart of our call at Believers. Uh, the Great Commission, anybody know it? All right, then somebody cite it. All right, wait. Start over. Okay. And the last two words were? Yeah, but we're not interested in that part. <laughs> Go therefore into all the world and make disciples that's our mandate that's what the church is here for is to make disciples and it's essential that we have evangelism but it's much more than that and the great commission there's only one verb in that and the verb is make disciples that's what we're called to do but we've got to be disciples before we can make disciples so if you look in the new testament and a lot of people in this country we'll call ourselves christians we'll say what are you? i'm a christian we might even get more specific. I'm a Baptist. We might get very, very specific and say, I'm a Southern Baptist. Although these days, sometimes you might want to leave that off with some stuff. But uh, we say, I'm a Christian. Did you know, how many times does the word Christian occur in the New Testament? Not many. Okay, once. Oh, I got a one one who will make it two, who will make it two, yeah. Three times, three times. And the first time it occurs in the book of Acts, it's a term of derision. 
they were first called Christians at Antioch, Little Christ. And the other times after that, it appears in... Now, it became a a term over the years in the advancement of the church that we refer to the believers in Christ as Christians. But the word disciple occurs, depending on which translation you use, 261 times in the New Testament. So if we really want to be biblical and say, what are you? Well, I'm a disciple. That opens up all kind of opportunities to share your faith. Well, what is a disciple? Well, that's somebody that follows Jesus and learns from Jesus. Well, how can you follow Jesus when he's dead? Well, he's not dead. And then you get on with all of that stuff. It's a word that opens up many venues of sharing the gospel with somebody else. Western civilization was built on discipleship. Not Christian discipleship. It was built on discipleship. Because Socrates, the great Greek philosopher, and you remember Jesus used some of the same methodology that Socrates used because Socrates was famous in his teaching for asking questions. He would ask questions and that would begin the discussion and people would learn. So Socrates started that method. He started his schools and then he had a disciple named Plato. And Plato continued somewhat changed the work of Aristotle, uh, uh, Socrates, and then Aristotle became Plato's disciple. Now you say, why are you telling us all this? Because they were all Greek philosophers, and Greek ruled the world. But then Rome came along, and Rome ruled the world, and they overcame Greece. But because of the discipleship that started with Socrates, then Rome, the conquering nation, became Hellenized. They became embedded into Greek culture. Can you imagine that? Here's the nation that overcame them, but then the effects of that nation they overcame actually changed Rome. Discipleship is a powerful process. And discipleship as Christians, as believers, as followers of Jesus, is the most powerful. Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer used to be one of... Well, he was a researcher at Lifeway, and now today I think he's pastor at Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, and he works at, uh, is it Wheaton that's in Chicago or Trinity? Anyway, he he's works there as an apologist, I think, maybe a researcher. But anyway, they came out with this research, and then those two guys were reminding us just a few years ago, there are three types of, quote, professing Christians. One is a congregational Christian. That's just a church person. And what they said was they're lost. And then there's another one that's a cultural Christian. And they embrace saying I'm a Christian because back then it would profit them in the culture. And they're lost. And then the other type they said is convictional Christians. And those are the ones that were born again by faith in Jesus Christ. And grow being discipled. So they have convictions that they live by. Now when you come to Mark chapter 4, Mark gives us four types of responses to the gospel. Three of those types are lost. You come to Luke chapter 9 and we have four responses. Again, three of them are given and the other one is part of the fourth one. But three of those are false. So I want you just to look with me and imagine what's happening here. Uh, Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He's moving toward Jerusalem. He's on the go. He doesn't have time to pander around he's on a mission and I think we all know what the mission of Christ was but on the way by this time now he has gained in popularity and so crowds would come out to hear him 
Why did they come out to hear him? Why did they come out to see him? Why did he attract so many people? Because they wanted what Jesus could do for them. They weren't interested in being a follower and a learner from Jesus. That's why you remember when the persecution came, you read about that in John chapter 6, when they began to have some hard times, then it says they fell away. But there were many crowds. They, they wanted healing, they wanted this, they wanted that, but they came out. So along that road that Jesus is walking on when Luke 9 is, is recording this event, then there are people all along the road. So as he's going in Jerusalem, he encounters these people. So if you look with me in Luke 9 and verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Now here's the first type of person that's not really a disciple. Uh, and it's an impulsive promise, but personal comfort was more important. Personal promise, but personal comfort was more important. Now you notice something peculiar about that verse? Let's read it again. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Do you notice that Jesus didn't call this person? See the people on the road, here comes Jesus. This fellow says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. But Jesus never said to him, you follow me. So this fellow represents the spirit of volunteerism. And the spirit of volunteerism is alive and well in America, but the spirit of volunteerism please hear me correctly, is a danger to the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because when God calls us, He calls us to be surrendered to Him, not volunteers for Him. That's why this time of year in Baptist churches all over the place, it's nominating committee time. Y'all do that? Soon will be. Y'all do that at Mount Airy? And most churches, this may be the exception, but most churches have all these spots and all these slots to fill. And one of the biggest spots you have to fill is in the nursery, taking care of the babies and the little ones. And that's one of the most difficult to get people that are faithful to come and work in the nursery. You don't have to say amen. I can, I can, I can hear you when you do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but listen, if people who are on our membership this church or any church, if they are surrendered to Jesus Christ, it doesn't become a matter of having to twist arm to get them to do anything. It becomes a matter of them responding to what their gift mix is. So, volunteers are surrendered, are not surrendered to Jesus. Jesus needs people who are surrendered to him. So, this guy volunteers. And he's, he's like in Mark chapter 4 and verse 13... 15, this person is like that seed that fell beside the road. And it says, when they hear immediately, Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. This decision is emotional and impulsive, but it's not lasting. He volunteered on the spot. Volunteered on the spot. Uh, he hadn't thought it through. He wasn't committed to it. His emotions got him. The crowd was there. And he says, I'll follow you wherever you go. You know, we have to be careful, really careful about saying things like always and never. Because when we say always and never, then there's usually going to be an exception some way to what we've said. But this fellow volunteered, said, I'll go with you wherever you go. 
Well, the first church I pastored, I went out to visit somebody one night, and I had learned the Roman road. You ever heard of it? Take the book of Romans and try to lead somebody to a profession of faith. So I go into this mobile home, and he's there, and I sit down with him. I go through the Roman road. I said, now, if you want to trust Christ as your Savior, you can do that right now. All you have to do is pray. Now, you really don't even have to do that. You just have to say, Lord, I give you my... You don't, you don't have to do anything. You just, you just do it. But I said, you pray, and you don't even have to pray. I'll pray, and you just follow me as I pray. Okay. So I prayed. He prayed right after me. I said, amen. I said, all right, now, if you were to die, what happened to you? He said, I don't know. I said, all right, let's do it again. So I went back and did it again, went through the whole thing again, thinking maybe he didn't get everything clear. Got to the end, I prayed, he prayed. Then I said, okay, now if something were to happen to you and you were to die, what, what, what would happen to you if you were to die? He said, I don't know. I said, wait a minute, why did you pray the prayer? Why did you do that? He said, I thought that's what you wanted me to do. I think, unfortunately, we have done that to too many people in our denomination. And I think today we're paying the price for that with what's happening in our churches. Our churches are on a free fall. Uh, we haven't stressed discipleship. We've had a huge, huge front door. But what we haven't realized is the back door was even bigger than the front door. So this fellow comes and he volunteers, but he's, he's really not a disciple. But he was likely a scribe. A parallel verse in Matthew 8 and verse 19 says, And a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Wherever you go. Now, in our setting today, probably most churches, if some huge movie star walked into the church and came down and said, I've trusted Christ as my Savior, then we'd be jumping up and down. We'd think, number one, he's going to tithe, and that's going to help our budget out. Number two, he's going to be something we can publicize this. We draw a lot of people because they want to see him. And then we start scratching our head and thinking, wait a minute, who are we here to see and hear from? Not some football player or some actor or actress. We're here to hear and follow Jesus. But we'd get all excited about him celebrity, but Jesus Christ was never, ever into the celebrity cult. A person's status or popularity never impressed Jesus Christ. This fellow didn't count the cost. What does it cost to follow Christ? Everything. Everything. I found that out recently. I think I knew it, but I wasn't necessarily sure that it was part of my fiber, my being. And back in December last year, I was diagnosed with cancer. And when we got the biopsy back, then this doctor tells me, this is an aggressive carcinoma, and we need to get on it right away. So I'm thinking, okay. And then he schedules the surgery for like two months out. So then I told my wife, I found out about the biopsies through an email, which is a terrible way for your doctor to let you know. But anyway, uh, this is Ann, my wife. Her nickname is Bulldog. So when she heard about that, when she heard about that, she got fighting mad. She called over the, I'm at work, and she called over the doctor's office, and she said, he said it was a grave, he said, need to get right on it, in two months is not getting right on it. And she cried a little bit on the phone, and the lady on the other end said, ma'am, there's nothing we can do about that. Let me put you in touch with the people at St. Francis. 
So she called the department, I guess it did the scheduling for the surgery or whatever. And anyway, she called me back, and this was on Monday. And she called me back and said, you having surgery Thursday? I said, oh, well, it give me a lot of time to get ready. <laughs> but I was glad because he kind of frightened us a little bit with aggressive carcinoma. And we go in, and I'd never had surgery before. And, you know, not knowing exactly what's going to happen. But I'd made peace with it before I got there. And I, I, and I knew, I knew that this is uh, it's all in God's hands. Whatever happens, it doesn't really matter. And I want to just glorify God with this. So go through the surgery. I get back in uh, the recovery room. And I'm laying there in recovery. And I hear, hear, hear groaning. I heard, oh. And it's kind of waking me up. I heard, oh. And then I noticed every time I moved my lips, I heard groaning. <laughs> and this absolutely beautiful Liberian nurse came over to me, had this beautiful British accent. She said, Mr. Gray, are you in pain? I said, oh. And she said, on a scale of one to ten. And I don't know how you interpret that scale. I mean, it seems to me like it'd be very subjective. Uh, I hope I never get to 10 where I have to say, it's a 10, it's a 10. I got a feeling if I got it too, I'd say, hey, it's a 10. It's definitely a 10. But she said, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate it? I said, oh. And she said, well, I'm going to give you something delauded. Delauded. Anybody ever heard of it? You had it? Tell me about your experience. <laughs> Well, I'm sitting there just really in pain, and she comes over and shoots me some of that stuff in my... And then it, it was just a matter of seconds, and the whole world changed. I mean, it just didn't last long enough. It goes out real quickly, but uh, that was my experience over there. But I got a chance, I really got a chance to uh, share with people uh, when I was in my right mind, which was not most of the time. But... There is absolutely nothing in this world that gives us greater security than just simply knowing who Jesus Christ is and believing what he has revealed to us in his word. For example, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you, Jesus said in Hebrews. Well, Jesus gave a strong answer to false disciples. If you look in verse 58. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He gave a strong answer to false discipleship. Uh, this man looked like a prized convert. But Jesus exposed something about him that other people might not have noticed. And that was his desire for comfort. And really his selfishness in the whole approach to following Christ. Uh, it was like Christ was saying to him this, you really haven't thought this through, have you? And then... Our desire sometimes to win converts can be counterproductive to what we want to be as the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the things that we've been guilty of, I think, in the Southern Baptist Convention, and, and I think that's what Stetzer and Muller were talking about in years past, we developed our own church culture. And the thing was always, how many did you have in Sunday school today? How many people were baptized? What's the size of your budget? How many buildings have you got? What size is your building? 
Now, I know all those things are necessary, but I want to submit to you this thought that does not impress Jesus Christ. What he's looking for is genuine, heartfelt believers who will follow him. But we go and we do all kind of... Listen, Southern Baptists got in this thing of gimmicks. We followed on the heels of Independent Baptists who started all the gimmicks and stuff with uh, eating goldfish and having helicopters to land and giving away uh, motorcycles and all this stuff back in the age of the bus ministry. We got in on that. We got in it. We got head over heels in it. So much so that when Vance Havner was speaking at this state in Columbia, he stood up in First Baptist Church and he said, I'm going to try to sound like Vance Havner and I can't, but he said, Southern Baptists have got into the circus business and we're sponsoring the monkeys. And he spoke, he spoke to the spirit of that age. It's not simply about building church attendance and it shouldn't be number one. It's not just about baptisms and it shouldn't be number one. It is about discipling people. Winning them to Christ, leading them to come to know Christ, but then not forgetting them, but discipling them and helping them to grow and mature and develop as followers of Jesus Christ. Because if all we get is a proselyte, we're in trouble. Listen to what Jesus said to those people, the Pharisees that were proselyting people in his day. Matthew 23 and verse 15, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Now, if I'd said that, you'd say, you shouldn't be talking like that. Well, that's what Jesus said. And he was talking to the most religious body of his day, the Pharisees. This profession of faith without the possession of the qualities of true spirituality is a deception. Uh, years ago, people used to travel. This was in a northeast city, and it was years ago, but it, it's still true in the big cities. These uh, three businessmen that lived in the same suburb together, they got on the commuter train, and they rode into the city to work every day. They rode on the same car for 20 years. They sat at their little seat. They had their paper. They had their coffee. They would talk and chit-chat. So one day they go in. They sit down. They go to their usual seat. Uh, they have their coffee. They have their newspaper, and they're sitting there chatting. Uh, and the conductor comes in and he says, gentlemen, you can't ride this car today. Well, these men were, you know, high-octane businessmen. They were successful businessmen. And they said, yes, we can. No, sir, I'm sorry, but you can't. And one of the guys said, oh, I'm sorry to tell you, sir, that we will. We've been riding on this car in this seat for 20 years, and we're going to ride on it today. So the conductor said, okay. And as he walked off, he said, I just thought you might want to be hooked up to something that's going somewhere. That car was being serviced that day. See, that's the thing about professions of faith. That's the thing we have to be careful about. We have to be deliberate about. And our work as the church of Jesus Christ is, we're not just trying to get a proselyte. What we are working to do is walk along someone and help that person become what we claim we are, which is a disciple. And disciple means a follower and a learner from a teacher. So we learn from Christ and we follow Christ. And the more we grow in that, we help somebody else do the same thing. Well, let's get back on the road. And going down the road, a second guy comes up in verse 59. 
And he said to another, follow me. And you notice the difference? This time, Jesus called the man. He said, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me to first go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Rather harsh answer, we think. But if you look at this guy, he made a special request. Jesus said, Jesus took the initiative. Jesus said, follow me, this fellow said, yeah, I will, but. Which immediately put him in the position of being charged of the situation. But if he is Lord, and he is, he's always in charge, and we never really are. So this, peop, this person said, I'll follow you, but. You ever had a conversation with someone, uh, and it's a typical, little, trite, simple psychological trick that people use all the time. When they want to tell you something they don't like about you or they disagree with, they'll say something nice, and then they'll say, but, you know, it, it's like that, uh, that conjunction is just hanging there on a the hinge, and it goes, but, bam, and then it comes. Now, this fellow said, I'll follow you, Lord, but I've got some conditions. I've got to go home and bury my father. Now, you know, when you first read that, you think, well, the man's father died. And there's three things to look at, I think, about that. Number one is, permit me first to go and bury my father, was a phrase that the Middle Easterners, particularly the Jews, used a lot. And what they meant was, I can't engage in this or that or the other until my father passes away and the inheritance is divvied out. They use that phrase constantly. The other one is, if his father had just died, why was this man out on the road? And the third thing is, Jews did not embalm bodies. The Egyptians embalmed, but the Jews didn't. You remember when Jesus died and the women took perfume and they, they, they wrapped him up in that burial cloth and they put all those sweet-smelling spices and then put them in a cool cave. And the purpose for that was to help cut the stench of a decomposing body. In uh, John 11, Lazarus died, Remember? And they buried him the same day. Four days later when, we, when Jesus showed up there and he's going out to the tomb, they said, Lord, he's been in the grave four days. By this time, his body stinks. So, what's going on here then? Uh, he's out on the road. Said he had to bury his father for a phrase Middle Easterners use all the time. And he's out on the road, so he's not really grieving. And the third thing is that... Uh, Jews buried people immediately, same day. Well, this man wasn't dead. He wasn't dead. He would die someday, just like everybody in here. We're going to die someday, but this, this man wasn't dead. He said, okay, I'll follow you, but I've got to take care of burying my father. And for the Jews, that was very important. If a parent did not have a child around to oversee their burial, it was a dishonor and a shame to them. So, he says, I'll follow you, Lord, on my timetable according to the things I've got to do because I've got some important responsibilities. And when I take care of all those things, then I'll follow you. And notice what Jesus said to the man. Allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, this person is like the thorns, the seed that fell among the thorns in Mark 4, 18 and 19. These are the ones who hear the word and the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. I've been doing this for over 40 years and I've noticed, observed over that period of time 
there have been an awful lot of people that had good starts, but they never finished. With Jesus Christ following him, being a real disciple, it's not just about getting a good start. It's about getting a good start, running a good race, and finishing strong. That's what real discipleship is about. We keep on keeping on. We press on. We move forward. And this guy wanted to put conditions on, exceptions on what he was doing. So Jesus gave that shocking reply. And he basically was saying this. Let the spiritually dead bear the physically dead. Secular people have different priorities than spiritual people. Well, he said, but your mission is this. Go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And his point was, there is nothing more important than following Jesus. Even a tradition. Even something that is ingrained in the family that was part of that culture. He was saying there's nothing more important than following Jesus. Uh, do you, I don't know if you can remember this. I can remember it a long time ago when I was a little bitty boy. And I'm like, you know, 45 today. At least. But I can remember in the little country church I grew up in that for a while we'd have two revivals. Do you remember revival meetings? We don't do that anymore, but it used to be revival meetings. And you'd have one in the spring and one in the fall. And you'd have a visiting preacher to come and everybody would come and the church would be full. And I remember going to that and it was just a, wow, this is something. And during one of those meetings, there was an evangelist that came. And as a little boy, I listened to him tell this story. And it impacted me so much that I never forgot it. I don't know if it's true, but I heard it. And it's a good story. Would you like to hear it? <clears throat> okay, he said in one of the northern cities or areas, country, there was a man and he had a bird dog. And there was a big uh, snow coming in that forecast that. And so this, this man decided, well, I'm going to go out this afternoon, take my bird dog out and see if I can, you know, hunt up some quail. So he takes his bird dog out and the, the front came in quicker than he thought it would. And so what happened is it began to snow. It began to really snow and the temperature just dropped. And then he said, i got to get out of this. And he calls his dog. He couldn't find his dog. He goes back to his house. He has supper. He gets warm. He said, I better go try to find that dog. He goes back out, takes his flashlight, looks for his dog. Couldn't find his dog. The next morning, he got up. It was well below freezing. Snow had frozen over. He goes out there looking for his dog. And he looks and he looks. And he finally found his dog. Pointed. Frozen to death. Now, the point of that is... Would God, would our loving, kind, generous, wonderful, gentle Lord Jesus ever say something so harsh to us? To the church at Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, he said, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. There are some things that are more important than life, and that's Christ and life in him. So this man didn't have a good commitment either. In fact, he had none. Now let's move on to the third one. A conditional statement that depended too much on family relationships. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. So he heard the other guy. You know, you can imagine on the road, he heard the other guy talking to Jesus. And Jesus said, follow me. So Jesus keeps moving. And this fellow says, here, I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Uh, he was more interested in a temporary situation than an eternal relationship. And so he says, yeah, I'll follow you, Lord, but I need to go back and tell everybody at home, bye. 
That sounds like a, you know, acceptable thing to do, reasonable. Yeah, I'll follow you, Lord. But let's put it in context. Now, remember, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. He's moving. He doesn't have time to wait. He's not going to linger. And what we know from what we've discovered of that time period, it could have taken as long as two months to say goodbye to everybody at home because the extended family would be way extended. And then you have to ask the question, why do you want to go tell, her, tell everybody at home goodbye? Uh, John MacArthur and some others think, well, the reason he did was he was going to raise some funds so he would uh, be able to take care of some things for himself because Jesus had already said, you know, the foxes have holes or, or the birds have nests, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. So he knew, wait a minute, funds are kind of low with this band. So if I go home and raise some money, that I, at least I'll be able to fi- buy food and take some things for myself. Uh, that's one idea that what might have happened, we don't know. But uh, he comes and he said, I will follow you, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. I think the, the great reason about this is Jesus knew what was in the man's heart. Jesus is God. Would you agree with that? He's more than just the Son of God. He is God the Son. This is what the cults choke on. He's not simply the Son of God. He's God the Son. He's God incarnate. So if he's God incarnate, then he knows everything. And if he knows everything... He knows us, and he knows us from the inside out, including our minds. Jesus knew if this guy went home, he wouldn't come back. Now, this guy made this reluctant promise. Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot become my disciple. Wow. Did you hear that? That's what Jesus said. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, and children, and brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And of course, those commentators that are smart write about this and say, this is a relative comparison. And relative comparison is, you have to be in a place that you love God so much that if you compare it to how you love your family, it's like hate. It's how much you love God. That's what you want to get out of this. It's how much you love God. So, this man, it was like he was saying to Jesus, hey, I'm not like that other guy. I'll follow you. I just need to go home and tell everybody goodbye. And then Jesus gave this response. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. I found out God doesn't make deals. Now, Donald Trump may be the master of the deal maker, but God doesn't make deals. Because he God, because he's God, he doesn't need to make deals. More important than our families is our relationship with God. He's more important than even our families. Now, our families are important. I've done marriage enrichment retreats and conferences and I even did a family life revival one time. And my whole thing has been, here's the order. This is the order that builds great churches. This is the order that makes families great. This is the order is that it's right. God first, family second, church third. And when family is second under God and the church is third, the church becomes stronger. But if family comes before God, then we've got a problem. God gave us the family. God designed the family. 
God wants us to love the family, but God wants to love us to love him more than anything. And sometimes that can be hard. It can be difficult. In 19... <coughs> anyway, in 19-something, I was uh, a student at the University of South Carolina majoring in journalism. I had been praying and bargaining with God, and God was at work in me, and I really couldn't get into journalism, although I started out, I was a sports writer for the Anderson Independent, and I even had my own column. I wrote a weekly column, too. And so when I transferred, after I graduated from Anderson, when I transferred to USC, they said, hey, we want to keep you on the payroll, and we're going to let you cover all of South Carolina sports, and we're going to pay you. So that meant I got free tickets and complimentary tickets. I got parking passes. I got food. I got to go to press conferences. I mean, it was a great deal for a junior in college. And to put it in perspective, it was just cool. It was cool. Uh, Got to meet all these coaches and all these players and all that stuff. It was just great. And I thought, man, I'm living the high life. Now, understand that my mother, uh, and my mom and dad are passed away now, but my mother would tell people uh, in, in the little town I grew up, they would say, she'd go to the beauty parlor. Anybody know what I'm talking about when I say beauty parlor? She'd go to the beauty parlor about every week or every other week and have her hair done. She'd go in there and her good friend would do her hair. And so there'd be other women in there and they'd say, well, where is Rudy? How's Rudy doing? She said, oh, you know, he's at the university. Like there was just one. In her mind, there was just one and it was in Columbia. <laughs> well, anyway, I come home. God, I, I mean, I was troubled. God was troubling me. And I started spending time in the graduate school library. And back then, before they built the new library, they had one section on the bottom. It was down in the basement. It was over in the corner. The floor wasn't even level. That's where they kept the religious books. And they had old broken down chairs there. Most state universities, they don't put a lot of emphasis on the things of God, you know. So I'd go in there with an old broken down chair and I would read and read and read. I took a correspondence course from Billy Graham I ordered tracts from California. I handed them out. I attended some navigator meetings. I, I'm trying to sense what God is doing in my life, what God wants to do with it. So finally, I bargained with God. I said, okay, Lord, I'll follow you, but don't make me preach. I'll, fo- I'll write for you. I'll be a writer. I know what, Lord, I'll be a writer for Decision Magazine which was Billy Graham's magazine. I had no clue that I even how to do that. But that, that didn't seem to work. And I got plumb miserable. And so I prayed one night. I remember it to this day. I was beside my dorm bed. I got down on my knees. I prayed. And I said, okay, Lord, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Just show me. Just give me some kind of sign. Just do something. If you'll let me know it in some way, just make me aware of it. I'll do it. Whatever it is, I'll do it. And in two weeks, I got three invitations to speak, and I had never gotten an invitation to speak before then. In churches, it nearly scared me to death. Then out of nowhere, and I literally mean out of nowhere, I'm walking on the campus, and I find this catalog from Central Wesleyan College. 
and I pick it up, and I read it. I said, you know what? I think that's where I should go. Back then, you could enroll in college for $15. And that's about all I had was $15. And I filled that application out, and I sent it in, and I got a letter back that I'd been accepted. So I go home one weekend. I tell my parents, I said, well, you know what? God's called me to preach. I'm going to transfer to Central Wesleyan College and get a bachelor's degree in Bible. I didn't know what I was doing because that meant I had to take four semesters of Greek, and I wasn't counting on that. But anyway, my mother cried when I said that. My daddy said, you don't want to do that, son. Make something out of your life. So that, that hurt a little bit. So I, got in, I went down to see my football coach that I'd had in high school. I said, Coach, uh, I feel like God's called me to preach. You ever notice how football coaches will always call you by your last name? Or they used to. He said, nah, Gray, you don't want to do that. Go make something out of yourself. So I made an appointment to see my pastor on Saturday morning while I was in town. I went by to see him, go into his study, and we talked a little bit. I said, well, the reason I want to talk to you is I feel like God's called me to preach, called me to the ministry. He looked at me and he said, can you do anything else? Now, I'd heard preachers tell that story since then, but that really happened to me. He looked at me and said, can you do anything else? So I go home, and Sunday afternoon, I drive back to Columbia, and I'm about as, I mean, I'd have to dig upward to have fellowship with an earthworm. I was so low. And I was just singing the blues, and that week I'm going on like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And before I, I left, I told him I was going to Central Western College. I, I felt like that's what God wanted me to do. And my dad, who was paying for my college, said, well, that's it, then I'm not paying another penny for you to go to school. And my mother said, that school is not even accredited. And I'm 99.9% .9 sure she didn't even know what that meant. So I go down there in a few more weeks, and I come back one weekend, and they're not there, but on the kitchen table in the house is a plate with a newspaper clipping on it, and the headline of the clipping said, Central Western College receives full accreditation. Now, I didn't know that was in the works because if you know anything about higher education, it takes years for that to develop. And so, uh, you know, my dad was still insisting. He said, well, I'm not paying another penny. But, you know, you'd have to know my dad. Have uh, you ever heard what somebody described as being tight? Well, he was so tight he squeaked when he walked. I mean, he was really... He could squeeze every cent out of a dollar. I said, that's okay. I can keep my job with the, with the independent, and, and, and I'll make it work. So I went ahead and took the courses the next semester at Carolina that would transfer into the major, like philosophy and psychology and abnormal psychology, which fit me just well, just really good. All those things. And uh, got my transcripts ready to go. Got accepted. And then he had a change of mind. I think it was because of pressure from my mother, but he decided he would pay the tuition. And in the process along the way, I went into my people that were in charge of me at the Anderson Independent, and I said, I'm going to, I need to resign. I'm going I'm to be youth minister at my home church. And the pastor asked me if I'd be youth minister. And I took exactly, I got exactly half. To work in the church, I got half of what I was making working on newspapers. But anyway, went on and did all of that stuff, and then God opened all kinds of doors up and all kinds of blessing. In fact, my, my dad later said, after I just finished my fifth degree, <laughs> fifth, I wasn't trying for a black belt either, just five degrees, 
And he looked at me and said, son, are you going to ever stop going to school? I've thought back on that since then. You don't always have to be working on higher education or degrees, but you always got to be learning. You've got to be about growing because that's what a disciple does. Whether you earn any certificate or degree or anything, it's still about moving forward and learning and growing in Jesus Christ. Well, you look at this absolute truth that Jesus gave. No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Does anybody here, everybody here is young, and I know you're a city-fied folk out here at Mount Airy. Does anybody ever remember plowing behind a mule or a horse? Anybody? Oh, my goodness, yes, yes. When I grew up, my, my granddaddy had a hired hand that lived with him on the place, lived with the family on the place. We lived next door, and he would lease some land, and then he had some land, and this man's last name was Turner, and he was a, he was a hoot. But he was in charge of the mules, and he would plow uh, gardens. He would plow rows. And I noticed that when he uh, would plow, holding on to the, he would say, gee, gee, ha, ha. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? I thought that's what he'd say, gee, gee, ha, ha, gee, gee, ha. And then he said some other colorful things that I can't repeat in church. But uh, those mules knew him well. But I found out that G meant right and ha meant left. And he was telling those mules which way to go. Now, my wife asked me this question the other day. She said, why is it G and ha? And I said, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's mule language. I don't know. But that's what you'd say to the mules. And the purpose of him doing all that was so he could plow a straight furrow. You can't plow a straight furrow, a row, if you're looking backwards. You'll go crooked every time so Jesus said no one after putting his hands to the plow being born again is fit for the kingdom of God who looks back because discipleship being a follower and learner of Jesus is always looking to him the author and perfecter of faith seeking him and his kingdom above everything else that's what it means to be a disciple, and nothing less. That's the benchmark of discipleship. So I would ask you, in, in closing, this question. We examine our own lives and hearts. Part of the church of Christ locally or part of the church of Christ in conjunction with many other local churches. We have to ask ourselves a real pointed question. Am I a volunteer, or have I surrendered to Jesus Christ? Is he Lord or is he one of several things that's important to him? And he is Lord. But we have to determine, we have to examine our hearts to see how important he is to us. Anybody have a question or an answer? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love and mercy thank you for your patience with us and thank you for the many many ways you show us that you care about us help us not to lose our focus by becoming more focused on the things that, that perish instead of the things that are eternal help us not to be enamored 
with the things of this world to the point that we don't love you supremely and foremost. Bind our hearts together as your family that we might seek in all of our ways, all of our words, and all of our opportunities to glorify the King of kings and Lord of lords in whose name we pray, amen.